days in our Bible studies, Lord, that um, how it is that you revealed yourself to Moses in the mountain, and he said, show me your glory, and so you did. And as you passed by, you, you declared your name, and you proclaimed things that were true about you, that you were gracious and merciful and long-suffering and showing mercy to thousands, but by no means holding, um, um, forgiving, uh, showing uh, that, that mercy towards the guiltless, uh, but rather towards those who are repentant. And, but then also, uh, Lord, we, we then get a more complete picture of the Father through the Son, because the Bible says we've known and seen the Father at any time, and yet the Son has revealed Him. And so um, we know that it's, it's not your severity, but your goodness that leads men to repentance. And so we thank you that it's by your goodness and your mercy and your grace, these things that you showed to Moses on the mountain, that you showed to us, that you draw us to you. And so um, we just we want to lay ourselves, Lord, at your feet, um, uh, at the feet of your word. And as we open up your word and as we break bread this evening, we just pray, Lord, that you would have us, uh, it would help us to have open eyes and open ears and hearts to receive uh, what you would have for us and to put it to practice and for it to form our minds and our hearts and our thinking so we can walk in obedience to it. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. We are going to be making our way to the ninth chapter of the book of Mark this evening. We're going to finish up the ninth chapter. And uh, just as a reminder, this will be the last Wednesday night meeting of this particular session. We'll be back, I believe, the first week of August. will be our next time together. So if you show up here next week, uh, you're going to have to make your own coffee. So am I which button do I push, guys, for the monitor? Why well, is the oh the big one that says power? That's the one. Man, that's difficult. So needless to say, as we work this out and we make our way that direction, if you recall with me, just as an overview of the ninth chapter, where we've come to from this point. The ninth chapter starts at the mountain of transfiguration. And uh, we see Jesus glorified, and, and Moses and Elijah uh, appear there, and Peter, James, and John get to be the three that go up to the mountain and get to witness the glorified Christ. And then as they come back down the mountain, uh, the, the man with the demon-possessed son that we talked about two weeks ago brings this demon-possessed child to Jesus. And Jesus uh, reveals to us that the only way to get out some of these difficult demons is with prayer and fasting. And then finally, where we ended off last time was Jesus actually predicting his own death. So if you would, uh, turn with me to uh, verse 33, and we'll read verses 33 through 35 to start off. And then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If any desires to be first, he will be last of all and servant of all. So 
where we just ended off last time was Jesus talking about a prediction of his own death. And where we pick up is now after this very heavy moment, the apostles all arguing amongst themselves which one of us is the greatest. So we've got them not exactly understanding the gravity of the situation to start with. But what Jesus lays out here is God's economy. And it's much different than our own economy. The world's economy looks very much like this pyramid. We've all worked probably in corporations, and we understand that the CEO's at the top and everybody else is on down. And really, your, your power, your prominence is defined by how many people serve you, how many people are underneath you. If you go to a job interview for a management position, they'll ask you, how many direct reports do you have? How many people do you have reporting to you for directions? And uh, God's economy is very much different than this. If you would, turn with me to Luke in chapter 22, verse 24, and we'll get some insight a little bit further into what Jesus is talking about with God's economy. So in the 22nd chapter of the book of Luke, verses 24 through 27, starting in verse 24, he says, And now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs, as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. So, Jesus is giving us insight into what God's economy, it actually looks like this pyramid structure flipped upside down. So what he's trying to explain to them is the waiter in God's economy actually is higher up than the folks sitting at the table. If you think about it, you go to 12 West tonight and you order dinner. Who's in charge? You because you ordered dinner or the waiter that went back to the kitchen? What direction do you really have or what power control do you really have over the food that's being prepared back there? I mean, if you order chicken and they bring you out a steak, you can ask for them to return it, and they could try to convince you that that's actually a steak and not a piece of chicken. Or if they take it back to the kitchen and they're back there hawking a lug on your food, are you even going to know the difference? What power or control do you actually have over what they're going to bring you? And, and God's economy is a lot this way. We don't have power over what He's going to bring and allow in our lives. What we have to do is trust that our Heavenly Father is going to want what's best for us and have what's best for us. And, and in fact, the farther we move up in God's economy, the more service we're going to have to perform. So if, if you're a pastor in this room, you're going to understand this very well, that, that as someone who, in our world's eyes, has got a little bit more uh, a, a higher elevation towards God, but in reality, you've got a lot of people depending on you. You've got a lot of servants. You've got a lot of people you have to serve. There's a lot of folks at your table that you're going to have to serve. So that's where God's economy is much different. And in fact, we see a few pictures. The world's economy is over here on the bottom right. This is what the apostles are arguing about. Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest! You know, that's, that's what we see. We're all fighting to, be who's, to decide who's the greatest, who's number one. And instead, you've got Jesus' version in John 13, 15. What he tells us there, after he's done washing their feet, he says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So here you've got God poured into the flesh of a man washing people's feet around the table. He's, he's teaching us that we need to be servants. 
All right. Moving on to verse 36. And pick up with me, if you would, in verse 36 of the ninth chapter of Mark. And then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So here's Jesus using this example of a little child. And the good news is, all you children's church workers, if you read these first few verses, you're safe. Everybody else who's not volunteering to work in children's church, you are in some deep trouble, and it's not my problem, it's right here in the text. So, I'm, I'm just kidding. But if you would volunteer for children's church, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> but what Jesus is trying to point out is just how seriously he takes the treatment of children. And, and throughout Scripture, we see just how, how, what a very, very important thing it is and why. Well, if we look back at the previous slide, children are a lot like we are if we're sitting at that dinner table. They don't have a defense mechanism. They are totally reliant on us as parents or providers or adults to provide for them. So God takes that very seriously. If you would look back with me in Leviticus chapter 20, we get an idea just how seriously God takes that. So in the 20th chapter of Leviticus, in verse 2, And again, you shall say to the children of, children of Israel, whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. That's pretty direct. Not a whole lot of gray area with that. So when we're talking about sacrificing children, basically, to, to Molech, to this to this false god idol with these uh, molten hot hands. They would actually sacrifice their children to that. They would burn their children alive. And if we fast forward to Jeremiah in the seventh chapter, my screen went out again. If we fast forward to the seventh chapter of Jeremiah, we'll get an idea of just what and why God is so serious about this. In verse 30, For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in my house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. They'd actually put idols up in the temple, false idols. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no longer be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. 
but they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of heaven and the beasts of the field, and no one will frighten them away. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. We see here just how serious God is about the treatment of children. That they had, these these people of Israel had fallen into, the people of Judah had actually fallen into the practices of the Canaanite gods or the Canaanite people before them, where they were sacrificing their children uh, to Molech. And God explains very clearly what's going to happen through the mouth of Jeremiah. So, uh, as we, we'll, we'll cover that a little bit more here in the next slides, but I won't leave you hanging with that one. In verse 38, back to Mark chapter 9. Uh, as we look at John's response, so what John comes back with is, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons who wasn't a part of our group. So we, we told him to stop doing it. But what Jesus says, to me, is a call for us to be ecumenical. That's a really big word uh, that I'm probably lucky I could even spell it correctly. But what it basically means is that we're called to be a part of the universal church. We understand that we're a part of the body of Christ in here. Each of us have different roles, and, and we are part of a body at Parkland Chapel. But we're also called to be a part of a group of churches, to be ecumenical, to be this universal church. So we've got a lot of different denominations, and Jesus makes it clear that, that as long as they're doing it in my name, that this is the, the ideas, that all these different denominations where we maybe get hung up, I, don't, I mean, not very many of us probably grew up in a Calvary Chapel, uh, I certainly didn't. I grew up Baptist. So where I would look at the Catholics, and we decided they were just a bunch of luscious. And we're not going to talk to those people. But it's, it's also easy for us to be in this Calvary mindset where if you don't do verse-by-verse Bible teaching, now I go back to my Baptist roots, and well, they just don't understand. They don't, they don't do things the way we do them. They're doing it wrong. Well, in reality, in God's economy, uh, it's, it's interesting to see that in, in 1 Corinthians, which we studied Back a few months ago, in chapter 12, verse 13, there's a call, verse 3, there's a call for us to be unified as a body. Instead of looking at it and worrying about all the different theological things that we've got different, that each one of these different denominations are serving a purpose, and they're serving it in the name of Jesus. As long as they're doing that, well, we may have some, some differences. Let's also look at the good that happens. Uh, I had the opportunity a few weeks back to go to the food pantry. And that's a Catholic organization. And as I walk into the food pantry, I see, I mean, it just totally blew me away. You've got folks coming in in some serious need, and they're filling up baskets of food that they need to live and survive. And these are, this is a Catholic organization. Now, I, I could have thought, boy, you know, these stinking Catholics. But instead, when I got back in my truck, I had tears in my eyes. I see men and women that just want to serve. They want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And nobody that walked up there to check out asked a theological question. I didn't hear one theological question. I didn't hear one question about doctrine. You know what they wanted? They wanted bread. They wanted a cup of water. That's what they were worried about. We went to graduation at St. Paul Lutheran uh, High School this past Friday, or Sunday, during the basketball game. And, you know, uh, we were at the graduation, and I got the chance because Madeline was upset to walk down through the hallways. And, you know, I could be all hung up about Lutherans and our differences, but what I saw as I walked down the hallways is I saw Scripture on the wall. I mean, thank God for a place that's got Scripture on the wall. 
So we, we get all caught up in these things, but what Jesus is trying to say is, is, is they're not against us, they're for us. All right, off that soapbox. If Jesus is, is he really in verse 42 talking about just literal children, or is he also talking about children uh, of God? Uh, if you would, look with me in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. So we are not just, I don't think he's just talking about literal children here. I think he's also talking about children of God. And, and the point here is anyone that's going to cause one of my children to stumble, it would be better to have a millstone, like one of these big honking millstones down here at the bottom of the, of the screen hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. Again, Jesus not mincing any words here. He's making it pretty clear that if you're going to cause one of my people to stumble, it would be better for you to be at the bottom of the ocean with one of these things tied around your neck. And for us as Christians, yes, we've got to be very careful about what we introduce into our families and into our houses, but we've also got to be careful about what we put out there to other people that are either believers, maybe they're on the fence, maybe they're already believers, but uh, that we don't stumble them with what we say, what we drink, what we look at. What's on our computer screen? Um, I, I've also been convicted as I went through this as, as to what my actions are. What's the look on my face? Because the idea is we want to draw people to the body of Christ. Are we out there with a positive attitude, with a, with a smile on our face? Maybe when it's even tough to have a smile on our face. You know, uh, I shared this on Monday with our group, but a comedian I don't recommend, but he, he did have a funny joke when he said, you know, money, money can't buy you happiness, but money can buy you a jet ski. Have you ever seen anybody not happy on a jet ski? I mean, you can't not smile on a jet ski. And I think, how often do I look like I've got a, I'm riding a jet ski? I really think that's what we're called to. We're called to ride around like we are zooming on a jet ski, on a sea-doo. So just as, as we try to get the big picture here, then we don't want to cause people to stumble. Uh, I wanted to share that analogy. So don't go looking up Daniel Tosh, please. All right, picking back up in the ninth chapter in verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye, rather than having two eyes and be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Whew, that's not heavy. So we get a picture of what the kingdom of God's going to look like. It's going to look like a bunch of pirates walking around, right? One-legged, one-armed, one-eyed pirates, just not really. So Jesus is trying to draw out a picture for us of the seriousness of sin. He's trying to give us an idea of just how serious sin is in our life. But first, the word for hell that he uses is actually the Greek word Gehenna. 
And that refers us back to the valley of the son of Hinnom. If you remember in Jeremiah where we just read, this is a literal valley. You can see here on the picture, this valley that, that comes down below the city of Jerusalem is the, is the Hinnom Valley. And up above, you've got the Kidron Valley, where the brook Kidron actually runs to. And then you've got the central valley that comes down through the middle. But this Hinnom Valley, that after the time of Josiah, if we look at 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10, and as we flip back there, you recall, Josiah was actually the last good king for the nation of Judah. And Josiah did his best to stamp out idolatry, and this child sacrifice. And in verse 10 it says, He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. So Josiah completely breaks everything down, and he turns this place into literally into a dump. And so at Jesus' time, this uh, Hinnom Valley is actually a trash dump, it completely burning with fire and corpses. They would throw... Uh, unclean corpses out there on this and trash and it's an awful awful area so that's what he's trying to draw their minds to uh, in this section is is this is the area where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched but back to the seriousness of sin what he's really trying to get at is sin is so serious in our life that we have to go after it with fervency we've got to try to cut that thing out and in Deuteronomy chapter 13, uh, I want to just read a couple different things about the seriousness of sin. And this is going to seem a little extreme when we first read it. But in, in chapter 13, verse 6, If your brother and the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend, who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one, of the, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him, and you shall put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And in verse 10 it says, And you shall stone him with stones until he dies. So that seems to be pretty extreme. If you've got anybody in your house trying to entice you and get you away to worship these other gods, you're to take him out and stone him with stones until he dies. There's, again, not a lot of gray area in what's being read about. But if we Go back and look at the story we just read. Because of this idolatry, because of this sin that they allowed, that all the way into the time of Josiah, in the, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, they were then sacrificing their children to these foreign gods. So yes, it may seem extreme in the beginning. Like there's some really extreme measures that God's calling us to do. Like we've got to go out and just kill this thing. But the reason he's saying to do it is because hundreds of years later, they're out there sacrificing their kids to these gods. It's actually for their protection that he's telling them this. Because what starts is this little bitty sin, this little bitty seed that's planted, eventually grows into this deadly tree, this deadly thing that's inside them. Until eventually they're just as, as spun out and, and they're going to be cast themselves into the sun of the Valley of Hinnom. So 
Uh, it's just something that, that as we look at, and we'll, we'll discuss it here a little bit more, but uh, we, need to, we need to be mindful of just how hard we need to go after sin in our own lives. So that last phrase in verse 44 is directly from uh, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. It's the last phrase in the book of Isaiah. So just something interesting as we talk about this Hinnom Valley. All right. Back to Mark chapter 9. As we work our way to these last two verses in the ninth chapter, and verse 49 picks up, and we see, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. I'm sure most of you have heard the term being worth your salt. Well, where does that come from? I'm so glad you asked where that comes from. Well, where that comes from, if we think back to ancient times and really throughout history, salt plays a real importance. It's an incredibly valuable commodity. Salt can be used for a lot of different things. It can be used as a disinfectant. It can be used in wounds. That's where we get the phrase salt in the wound. Um, It can be used as a preservative. It can also be used as a purifying or a cleaning agent. And in the time of the Roman soldiers, they would actually receive what was called a salarium agentum. So with their salary, they would also get a bag of salt as a part of their payment because it was so valuable. And that's where we get this term, are you worth your salt? Is he worth his salt? And interestingly enough, uh, our word, our English word for salary actually has its roots in this uh, word salarium, salary. So this, this idea that salt is a very valuable thing, even in the 6th century uh, A.D., there's a group in sub-Saharan Africa that so valued salt, they would trade ounce for ounce gold for salt. Because if you've got an arm with a big old gash in it, and you try to rub a bar of gold around on it to get that infection out, good luck to you. It does you no good to have that bar of gold when you're dead or you're hacking your arm off. So they would trade ounce for ounce salt for gold. And if we look at what salt means from a scriptural standpoint, we can turn back to Leviticus chapter 2 and look at verse 13, what God says about sacrifices and salt. Leviticus 2.13. I put these handy cheats on top so I didn't have to fumble around. I'd look way smarter than I am, but you probably noticed that, so... Put them on the side. Why well, didn't think about putting them on the side, Lee? Thanks a lot. That information would have been useful a few hours ago. <laughs> All right, in verse 13, And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. So salt, again, this idea of purifying and, and salt comes into play. We're to offer salt with our offerings. So salt, in a more practical standpoint, let's fast forward all the way to Colossians chapter 4 and look what Paul has to say in verse 6. What a wonderful world. All right. And the sixth chapter or in the sixth verse of chapter 4, we see, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each other. So Paul's actually saying, 
in a, in a figurative sense, even let our speech have salt in it. Let our speech have purity in it. As we're talking to one another, as we're having conversations, it's important for us to process that and let that simmer. Add some salt to it. Not to have salty language. That's bad. We don't want to do that. We don't want to talk like a firefighter or a sailor. We want to, we want to have some salt in our, in our, on our tongue so we're actually purifying and cleaning. So how is it that we add salt into our lives? What do we do to actually add salt? Um, I'd like to go back to this, this idea of are you worth your salt and this salary. I think what do we have to do to earn a salary, right? We've got we've to work for it. So to me, I'm not talking about salvation, please don't get me wrong, I'm talking about this effort to purify and to cleanse. We have to actually work at this thing in order to achieve it. It started with the previous slide where we've got to go after sin fervently. We've got to go after it to cut it off. But then once that thing's rooted out, we've got to then use this salt to, to purify and to, and to cleanse it so that that thing doesn't come back, doesn't get infected. In Matthew, and actually the reference should be 1624, uh, and, and also in Matthew 1130, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't say there is no yoke and there is no burden. He says it's easy and it's light. So there's actual effort that has to be made on our part. And, you know, I think we can get caught up in this idea of resting in the Lord, you know. But the verse actually says, come you who are weary and rest. So to be weary, you had to actually put some effort forth first, right? Uh, We're not sitting next to Tommy Chong on the couch. Hey, man, I'm just resting in the Lord. There's actually some work that we have to do to this thing. And in Matthew 11.30, what he says, if I can get to it, oh, that's my yoke is easy. Sorry, Matthew 16.24. See, I didn't have tabs on that. Matthew 16.24. Yeah, I messed up on the screen. should be 1624. He says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So again, there's this idea of work happening. And what Paul says in Philippians 2.12 is that we need to work out this faith with fear and trembling. Again, work. This idea of of working at things in order to to actually create purity in our own lives. So as as we... you know, leave out of here and we think about how we can add purity. Uh, that television that's sitting in our living room, I don't know about you, but that thing is like a constant flow of filth. Even the commercials on it are filthy. So we've got we've to examine what we do with that. When it comes to the music we listen to, are we listening to Christian music? Are we, again, polluting our mind and polluting our head? Because a lot of, for a lot of us, you know, we've been down some sinful paths, and it's really easy to go right back down that direction unless we are continually trying to purify ourselves. And, and then as we wrap up, let's not stumble and lose our saltiness. So again, Jesus wants to make it clear. In Matthew 5.13, what he says about salt there. is really a warning for us. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. 
So they would actually take the salt that had lost its saltiness and they would put it out on the road to keep people from slipping. They would put it out on their steps, like we do with rock salt, and it would be used to basically be tread under. So this thing that was so valuable, it was so uh, worthwhile for disinfection and purification has now become something, uh, nothing more than to keep us from losing our footing. And what I really love, because Jesus is so meek and mild, what he says in Luke 14.35... Actually, if we start in verse 34, he says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. So it's not fit for the ground or even the pile of poo over here. That's, that's what he's saying. It's no dung good. Sorry, that was, I did that just for Mike Mingy right there. No dung good. You can use that if you want, Mike. But that, that's really where we're at. When we get to that point where we have lost our saltiness, where we've lost our purity, we are basically ineffective for the kingdom of God. So we've got to strive for that. We've got to, go, we've got to work our tail off to get back to that place. And Jesus will help us. He'll come alongside us and help us as we strive for it. But it, it's on us to root out sin, to be fervent after it, to cut it out, to cut our arm off, to cut our leg off, figuratively speaking. Um, to, to try to root this out and then purify ourselves. So we should strive for this purity. And I challenge you to do that as well as I challenge myself. Thank you. So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a chance to open your word this evening. Thank you for strong words that are powerful. Um, thank you for an image of hell as an awful place that we don't want to go, but we also see you as such a loving and gracious God, how you warn us and you uh, teach us about things as we work our way through the Bible. And, uh, and your desire ultimately is for us to have a relationship with you through your Son, that you desire for us to have this purity, for us to have this holiness, for us to um, just, just strive for that. I pray, Father, for the folks in here that we would have a renewed spirit and a renewed heart, that we would seek after that, that we would look at the things that we are consuming and the things that we were putting into ourselves and allowing into our lives, that those things would be purified, they would be cleansed. Uh, So we thank you, Father, for this uh, opportunity, and we praise you. Help us to have a good rest of our week. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you all stand?